kids' ministry. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And, uh, and that's where we're going to stick this morning. So as I, as I was thinking, how am I going to open up this morning... I thought that, uh, that maybe I would talk about the Super Bowl halftime show, uh, and, then, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I thought, uh, you know, sometimes there are those illustrations that you, uh, you use, and they become kind of more distracting than, like, the, you forget what the rest of the sermon was about because I used that particular il- illustration, and so I was like, you know, maybe the halftime show isn't such a good idea, so I'll talk about the State of the Union address instead. So, uh, so that'll be good. Uh, so rather than discuss the content of the State of the Union address, I really just want to, to, to discuss two different events that took place. Uh, number one, uh, I want to discuss the ripping of the transcript. The ripping of the transcript, something that happened, yeah, you, you had a feeling inside of you when that transcript was ripped, it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you sit on, something arose inside of you. It was either like this sense of joy and excitement, or it was a sense of like disdain. You were very frustrated with uh, Miss Pelosi as she ripped the transcript up. There was also that, and then the, the other piece was, uh, you know, President Trump, when uh, there, there are these things of decorum that you're supposed to do. One of these things of decorum is that you're supposed to go up and shake the hand of the Speaker of the House, and, and, and he didn't do that part, right? So there are all of these things missing in the State of the Union address, and people on both sides of the political aisle, we have feelings about these things. These feelings kind of rise up within us, and, and and, uh, you know, I don't know which category you might fall into. Let's, let's just take the event of the ripping of the transcript, for example. You know, I don't know how you particularly felt about that. And I don't really care how you felt about that thing. Uh, what I care about is how do you feel about your neighbor who views it opposite of you? How do you feel about your neighbor who sees it the complete opposite way that you do? How do you feel about your neighbor who, uh, maybe for you, maybe you were uh, really frustrated when she ripped that up. How do you feel about your neighbor who was cheering when she ripped the transcript? How do you feel about uh, your neighbor, maybe you sit on the other side, how do you feel about your neighbor who just had all sorts of awful things to say about the Speaker of the House? You know, it, it doesn't matter where you sit, the reality is, is what I really care about more than how you feel about the actual event, I care how you feel about your neighbor. So, uh, so is, is what they say, whatever, whoever they are, is what they say about this event going to cause you to write them off as unworthy of your time and attention? Is their political position going to cause you to write them off as beyond repair? as hopeless because you know what it's a really good thing that Jesus didn't do that with you so I want to talk about the other the idea of the other the other is the person who does not look think speak or act according to my standards of what is right and good That's the other. That's how I want to talk about the other this morning. The person who does not look, think, speak, or act according to my standards of what is right and good. So so let's be honest. You know, we're in church. We have been formed by Scripture, formed by the Word of God. One of the things, like sometimes our standards of right and good actually happen to align with God's standards at some points. And then 
there's this other reality where some of our standards of what is right and good develop out of kind of personal preference or uh, cultural preference. But what happens is that whether, whether it's God's standard, whether it's our standard coming from personal preference, the way that we tend to prioritize all of these things that we call right and good is really based on feeling. Like our feelings basically tell us how we should prioritize things. So like when we respond in the moment, what we're responding to is a feeling because a feeling, or a, some, some standard of ours, whether it's God's standard or whether it's a cultural standard, something has been violated inside of us. And so we are responding at a feeling. And so therefore, the more, more intensely I feel, about a certain standard that I hold, the more violent my reaction is going to be against the other who breaks that standard. So, uh, so I'll take a, another seemingly innocuous issue in our culture today. Let's talk about the Second Amendment this morning. This is, you guys aren't gonna remember anything else I say because I spent the whole first part of the sermon talking about politics. So uh, <laughs> Second Amendment. Go with me. Some of you may disagree, but I wanna go with me here. A Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian can, in good conscience, hold to a political position on either side of the gun debate. So there are people who are pro-gun control and pro-limitation, and then there are people on the other side who are pro-gun access and gun ownership, and that might be an oversimplification for some of you, but just go with me, okay? So the other, in this case, is the person who happens to hold the opposite view that you hold. So you know what happens every time there is a school shooting. Uh, this issue and where people stand on it gets brought up. And what happens is that people on either side of this debate turn the other into their enemy. People turn the other into their enemy, and so we start lambasting those who don't see it the same way that we do or, or happen to express an opinion that is different from what we hold. And it, and it doesn't just become a discussion of issues, it becomes attacks on intellect. It becomes demeaning conversation against the other person. It becomes, it, it quickly sort of digresses the conversation and sometimes we don't even say the things directly to the people that we think of as the other. Sometimes we talk a whole lot about them and the perspectives that we hold behind their backs to hope folks who happen to agree with us. Um, so let's, let's look. So that's, that's the gun debate. All right, one more thing. Let's talk about something that we can attach morality to. Uh, there is a move in our culture, you may be aware of it, you may not be aware of it, but there's actually a move in our culture to make sex work legal. There's a move in our culture. It's actively happening right now. There are people writing about it in the New York Times. You can read articles about this. And so, uh, so like, let's talk about something that we agree with God on. Prostitution is clearly wrong. It would objectively be bad for our culture, we believe this firmly, it would objectively be bad for our culture if we were to legalize prostitution. And there are people, though, however, who are making the argument right now that it would be a good thing for our culture if we did this. Again, I don't want to address the issue so much. I want to ask you, how do you feel about the person making the argument? How do you feel about the person who says this would be good for our culture? What is your gut reaction to them? What is your initial view of them? 
do you first see them as a person like you in need of the grace of Jesus? Or are they an enemy to be opposed? Are they an enemy to be disdained or judged or talked about? Because that's how the world plays this game we call life. They turn the people who disagree with them into the enemy. They turn the people who is other into the enemy. And Pastor Don talked about this last week. Last week, he pointed out, you know, that we as Christians, what we're doing is we're really kind of playing by the world's rules in dealing with how we treat the person we might consider to be the other. We tend to make them into an enemy, and then every time we do this, what we do is we actually let the world form us into its mold. We let the world form us into its mold. So, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the idea is if we are being, if the problem is, is that we are being formed into the world's mold, the question arises, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? If this is who we are, if we've allowed the world to kind of shape us into its image, what do we do about this? And the answer in Romans 12, one and two is this, don't be conformed to the world, Don't let the world form you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So we've got to to break out of this mold of seeing our neighbors, however, on whatever issue they represent, uh, of seeing them as enemies. And and the, the key to this, I think, is the renewal of our mind. So the word mind uh, in this particular text is a word that means understanding. It is a word that, uh, that seems to have something to do with how we interpret and regard events around us, how we see things. Um, and so what this seems to indicate then is we need a new understanding. What is wrong with us is that our our previous understanding of the world, we've allowed the world to give us a certain way to understand the things around us. What we need now is a new understanding. And so today, like I said, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 14. And this is what it says in verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this concluded is a word about understanding it is conclusions that have been drawn things that we have discovered ways that God has reshaped our mind and the way that we see the world to now be able to approach our world not according to its mold but according to love we have concluded this so how does our trans our, our understanding transform so so this morning, we're going to be talking through love's transformed understanding. And uh, after we talk through love's transformed understanding, we're going to be talking through love's purpose. So, uh, so first, love's transformed understanding. So what have we concluded? Verse 14 says this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. So when we come to Jesus... 
what we do is that we bring our sin. We don't bring much more than that when we come to Jesus. So Jesus, he dies our death on the cross in our place. And, and what happens is that the cross is then the great equalizer of all of humanity. So that none of us, when we step forward before Jesus, none of us can claim to be any better off than the other person because at the core of our soul, we have this thing called sin. We have inside of us this rebellion against God. And so there's not like some are good or better than others or some are worse than others or anything like that. Like it's, we all approach with the same condition. So then what happens is Jesus dies our death in our place he dies our death in our place and then we die to ourselves so when Jesus dies it's kind of like we die with Jesus because when we approach Jesus and we come and we say Jesus we've got nothing you've got everything then we die a death to ourselves and Jesus dies our death for us so then what really happens is that the cross it levels the playing field for us The price for entry into God's approval and presence is the blood of Jesus. And the good things that you've done, they don't count one bit for you earning any sort of favor or approval before God. So now what I want you to do is think about the other for a second, right? We're going to go back to that conversation of the other. You know what the cost for their entry into a loving relationship with God is? It's the same as yours the same cost, it's the same price, the blood of Jesus is what will be their entry into the kingdom. Because inside of you is the same brokenness that's inside of them. And therefore the same price has to be paid. And I would wager in some cases, like we walk around in the world, we encounter people who are not Christians, but man, they behave an awful lot better than we do, right? And so, so, so their, their, their actions, their deeds, they might even be better than ours are, but at the end of the day, we all have the same problem inside of us that can only be solved by Jesus. So when I evaluate culture, and I look at the person I might call the other, and I might draw conclusions like this, they're the reason that this world is you know, going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, they're the reason that, uh, that this world is, is falling to pieces. They're the reason that our country is having the problems that it is. Uh, the way that they live is disgusting. How they, can they keep letting this continue? Uh, the Bible calls the things that they support, you know what the Bible says about the things that they support? It calls it an abomination. That's what it says. And so the cross forces me to ask myself, but what about you? What about you, Alex? Was there something in there that Jesus really had to die for or did you have it pretty much all together when you came to Jesus? Because the cross, it confronts me with the abomination of my own sin. Let's talk about that word abomination for a second because we can attribute it to certain things going on in our culture and the Bible certainly does call that an abomination but did you know what else the Bible calls an abomination? Proverbs 12, 22 Lying is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 17, 15, justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous is an abomination before the Lord. Proverbs 16, 5, anyone who has an arrogant heart is an abomination before the Lord. So if you're not in the same category yet, I've got one more for you. Deuteronomy 32, 16, idolatry 
giving your affection to something besides God, giving the affections of your heart to something besides God, worshiping something besides God, that is an abomination before the Lord. So you know what? At the end of the day, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. So, you want to talk about their abomination, don't forget too quickly your own arrogant heart, your own deception, your own idolatry, because from God's perspective, they're all in the same category. Romans 2, Romans 2 says this, or sorry, it's Romans 3, not 2, that reference is wrong, it's Romans 3, 10 to 18. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave. The things that they speak, death comes out of their mouth. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruined in misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is like what is wrong inside of us. This is our uh, uh, opposition to God. And this is who the Bible says we all are. Not just like some people. Not like, there's not like a special group of people who are better than others, but we are all laid equal before the Lord. And part of coming to Jesus is making an, an acknowledgement. I am an abomination. I am a glory thief. I have given my affection to created things rather than to my creator. I tend to want my own way, God, and I don't really want yours. And when I make this acknowledgement and I stand before God, my acceptance with God is based on one thing, and it is the shed blood of Jesus. So first part of love's transformed understanding is that the cross puts every single human being on a level playing field. Okay, second part of love's transformed understanding. Verse 15 says, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, uh, so Jesus, Jesus made us alive to live for him alone. Jesus made us alive to live for him alone. So like, let's talk about the resurrection for just a second. The resurrection is one of the most significant events in all of history because it proves to us that Jesus had the power to do all the things that he said he could do. It proves to us that he actually had the power to forgive sin, to actually do away with some of these things inside of us. It proves to us that he has the power to give us life when there is so much death inside of us. So, uh, I want to talk about brand loyalty for a second because, because Jesus' resurrection proves to us that there is no other thing to which our loyalty belongs besides Jesus. So, so I'll talk about brand loyalty and how brand loyalty works in my house. You probably think I'm going to talk about Apple. And no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about <laughs> Apple, but I do want to talk about brand loyalty. There is a, a company that makes products called Vanacream. Vanacream makes uh, skin products, skincare products, uh, kind of all sorts of uh, personal care products. And, and 
our household is very loyal to Vanacream, and I want to tell you why. Because we have a particular need in our household. Um, Andrea, her skin has trouble with some chemicals and, and that kind of stuff. A lot of products are made with a lot of chemicals, but Vanacream makes all of their products very, very safe. And so our household has a brand loyalty to Vanacream. We kind of go after it. And, and they have our loyalty because they solve a problem for us that few other companies are able to solve. And Jesus is like kind of in the same category in that he stands apart from everything else in all of creation because there is no other person in all of the world that can solve this death problem that we have besides Jesus. And he proves it to us by raising from the dead. You know, there are a number of philosophies and religions in the world, and they all promise to us life, fulfillment, kind of a, a process. They have their own set of promises that they offer, and Jesus stands among all of them as unique because he's the only religious leader that actually rose from death. And it proves that his power to deliver on the, the promises of life it proves that he's actually like worth it, that there's no other way of life that can lead to life like Jesus can. So if we actually believed with our whole hearts that this thing called the resurrection happened, we would give our devotion to nothing else. So Romans 10, 9 says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We love this verse, and this is a great verse because it shows us how simple salvation is, how simple it is to find approval before God, to, to be called a friend of God. I wanna talk to you about this idea of believe in your heart, though, because we tend to treat this like it means you can just kind of agree that Jesus rose from the dead. Like, do you just kind of agree that Jesus rose from the dead? Or do you believe it so much that you'd be willing to stake the entirety of your life and your livelihood on it? Because that's the kind of belief that it's talking about. Believe in your heart is to say your whole personhood, your whole identity, that you would be willing to stake everything you are on this one truth that Jesus rose from the dead means that you believe this so strongly that it entirely transforms and changes your life. It means that you recognize that no one or nothing else in all of creation has any power to fill the need that you can meet besides Jesus. It has no power to fill the need that you experience. And so the second part of love's transformed understanding is this. It's a constant reminder that Jesus, he made us alive to live for him alone. Him alone, it's exclusive. All right, third part of love's transformed understanding is this, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So, when the first two pieces of this transformed understanding that we're called to takes place, when we see that, uh, that you know, the cross levels the playing field, when we see that Jesus made us alive to live for him alone, they naturally lead to a third understanding. New life offers a new way of seeing. 
New life offers a new way of seeing. So you know what? When, when these things become rooted in my soul, it changes the way that I see people. So instead of seeing people and their stances on particular issues, I see them in relation to Jesus. Instead of seeing people and the particular good or bad actions that they might perform, I see them in relation to Jesus. Instead of a person who associates with a particular political party, I see them in relation to Jesus. Instead of seeing them according to skin color, I'm called to see them in relation to Jesus. Instead of seeing them according to their particular cultural identity, I see them in relation to Jesus because once my mind has been transformed by Jesus, the thing that I want above everything else is for people to know Jesus. That's the thing that I'm committed to. So like, let's talk about Paul and the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul was raised as a Jewish person. He was raised in a sort of a very advanced, like had all the biblical training, knew the law really, really well. And you know what he was trained to do as a good Jew was to hate the Gentiles. That's what he was trained to do. His whole life, it was everything that formed how he thought about the entire world. And when he comes to understand, hey, he sees the risen Jesus in front of him. Like Jesus stops him on the road to Damascus and appears to him and Jesus is standing there and saying, Paul, why, or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So he sees the risen Jesus with his own eyes and he understands that the cross levels the playing field. He understands that him, with all of his Jewish training and all of his law following, that he is not one bit better than the Gentile who is over there when he stands before God because him and the Gentile both have the same problem. So when he sees all of this and he sees that Jesus is alive, it changes everything for him. He forsook the entirety of his life's work everything that he had been building towards. He, uh, he, you know, he, in Philippians, it just kind of talks about his entire resume. He spent all of his life building things up to be a good Jewish person, to be a good religious leader, and he forsook all of it because Jesus made him alive. So let's talk about the person that you might label as the other in your life. Are you seeing them through gospel-shaped glasses? Is Jesus your point of reference for them or is it the issue? Is Jesus your point of reference for them or is it the fact that they smoke? Is Jesus your point of reference to them or, or is it their foul language that they use? When we come to Jesus and believe the gospel, what happens is that it radically reshapes the way that we view people. So let's go back to Paul and the Gentiles. You know what happened with the Gentiles? Paul saw the Gentiles as his key ministry. It was the people that he was devoted to loving above all other people. So at the beginning of his life, it was the people that he was devoted to hating above all other people. And then he spends the entirety of the rest of his life after Jesus devoted to loving these people and bringing the gospel to them. So when we come to Jesus, when, when we believe the gospel, it reshapes how we view people. And like Jesus, we actually become people who can change the other from enemy into friend. Because that's what Jesus does. He walks into people he might have called his enemies and they become friends to him. So you want to uh, want to evaluate 
um, what's, what's actually the first thing, the first thing, when you encounter the other, when you have a conversation with them, when you hear them talking about whatever they're talking about, what is the first thing that you want for them? The very first thing that you want for them. Is it for you to be proven to them? Is it, is it to, to prove yourself? Is it for them to be wrong or for them to admit to that, that they're wrong? Or is it for them to meet Jesus? Is it to conform to certain standards of behavior that you think they should have? Or is it for them to fall in love with Jesus? Because if your desire for everyone that you meet is that what the gospel calls us to is that the desire for everyone we would meet is simply that we would want them to fall more and more in love with Jesus. And so if that's, if that's your primary motivation in your relationship with others, how does that change how you view the person that you consider to be the other? How does that change your actions toward them? Okay, so that's love's transformed understanding. The next one is this, let love live its purpose. Let love live its purpose. So 17, this is one of our favorite verses in all the Bible. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the verse of hope. Because it, what it tells me is that if I'm not seeing people the way that I need to see people, you know what? Jesus can make me a new creation. He can actually change the way that I see people. It's a great place to be because you actually can ask yourself an important sort of self-evaluating question. And that question is this, where am I struggling to believe the gospel? Where am I struggling to believe the gospel? So if, so if I'm encountering a change, like I'm, I'm struggling to be transformed in a certain area of my life, the question that I have to have is, where am I struggling to believe the gospel? Maybe it's a, in a view of myself where I kind of prefer to see myself as better than the other person that I'm relating to. And so maybe I need to believe the gospel and just to say, hey, the cross levels the playing field. Maybe it's in my own loyalty to a certain issue more than it is in my loyalty to Jesus. And so if that's the case, then I need to say, hey, Jesus died to give me life so that I would live for him alone. Because this is Jesus' process of making us new. He kind of shows us all the ways that we're broken. And then he, he calls us to change, but he doesn't just call us to change. He actually gives us the tools to do it because he gives us the forgiveness, the grace for all the ways that we are broken. So therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Verse 18 goes on and says this. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So God did this for us. He brought us to Jesus and, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So when we get saved by Jesus, Jesus gives us a new purpose. We get a new calling in life. And it doesn't matter what our career choice is. It doesn't matter where we happen to live. It doesn't actually matter wherever we are. Like in the place that we exist, we are given a new calling and a new purpose. And that purpose is this. We are ambassadors. We ambassadors, what they do is they represent their country. Right? So, so we send ambassadors to other countries to represent the United States. So what that means is for us, if we are ambassadors, we are representing God to the world. We're the people that God has sent out into the world to show them what God is like. So what that means is, is when we come across the other in our life, we represent God to them. So when we do our jobs, we represent God in the way that we do our jobs. 
When we engage in political discussion, we represent God in the way that we engage in that discussion. When we inhabit our neighborhoods, we represent God in the ways that we inhabit our neighborhoods. We seek to be the kind of people who restore hope in our spheres of influence, in our leadership, in our servanthood, in everything that we do, we are now ambassadors and the world is looking in on us to see what they might learn about God. So how do we do this? Paul highlights two things. He highlights a ministry and a message. So we have a story to share with these people about who God is, about the kinds of things that he came into this world to do, that Jesus actually came to to win a people to himself. Uh, We can tell people about a God who wants a relationship with them. So our goal is then to find some way to communicate that message to the people in our spheres of influence in a way that is meaningful to them. We want to communicate the gospel to all the people in our spheres of influence in a way that is meaningful to them. So this is what it might mean. With your neighbors, it might be getting to know them, having them over for dinner, showing them that you're actually invested in your neighborhood. Seizing then, seizing, after the relationship has been built, seizing the opportunity in this relationship that has been built to uh, have some spiritual conversations with them to let them know about the Jesus who saved you, who, who won you into relationship with your father. What about the other in your life? How might you do this with the other in your life? With the other in your life, it might be actually going to them and repenting for the ways that you've acted towards them. There's nothing, I, I tell you, there's nothing stronger in a Christian witness. I mean, uh, I mean, one of them would just be not doing the wrong things, but there's nothing stronger than in a Christian witness than when you've done something wrong to actually go and fully own the thing that you've done wrong. Do you know how rare that is in our culture today? That people would actually own the things that they've done wrong? So we have an amazing opportunity then to go to the other in our life and and maybe there are ways that we've treated them or spoke to them or spoke about them that we need to apologize for and you know what, that starts to build trust between us and the other. And, And you know, it doesn't just stop at rebuilding trust but then you try to invest in a relationship with that person where you try to get to know them because they're not just the issue that they identify with, they are an entire person made in the image of God. They are worthy of your time and attention so you actually dig into getting to know them and understand who they are and then you find opportunities again to have spiritual conversations with them and not just that but to reveal the kingdom in the ways that you act towards them. Here's the point though this morning. Our purpose. If Jesus actually has risen from the dead, our entire purpose has shifted. It changes the way that we really relate to people. We can no longer allow the world to form us into its mold. But our purpose is to do everything in our power to bring the gospel of God's love to all people, even to people who we consider to be the other in our lives. So verse 20 says this. It says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Uh, John, John, or Paul, he's, uh, he's writing to these people and uh, he's, you know, he understands that there are some people listening in who, who don't even have that relationship with the Lord. 
And as he's writing these things, as he's writing about the way that Christ can transform you, he's talking to some of them and saying, listen, like some of you don't even have a relationship with the Father. Some of you haven't even met Jesus yet. But let me tell you about Jesus. This is what he can do. You who in your heart are an enemy of God, he can actually win you a relationship with God so that God will call you friend and not enemy no longer. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 21, for, his, for our sake, he made him. He's he just bringing the gospel back in. He doesn't stop bringing the gospel back in. 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus, perfect, the perfect spotless lamb of God, knew no sin at all. He made him to become sin so that God's judgment towards sin might not be carried out on us, but that it would be carried out on him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this morning I'd implore you, start looking at your neighbors through gospel-shaped glasses. So what? Number one, see like Jesus sees. So these people who live and think differently than you do, at their core, have the same problem that you have. They're at odds with their creator. And thankfully, Jesus solved that problem for us. And what we wanna do is we wanna see them as people for whom Jesus can solve that problem. So may God transform our hearts to actually see every single one of our neighbors like this. And then number two, love like Jesus loves. You know, Jesus served people he showed the kingdom in the way that he served people. And then Jesus taught and told people about the kingdom with his words. And some of those people were actually like reconciled to God. So, uh, so there are two categories of what it looks like to love well in a way that reveals the kingdom. And those two categories are this, words and deeds. In your words and in your deeds, are you finding intentional ways to share the kingdom, to reveal the kingdom to those in your spheres of influence? As we close this morning, I want to, um, I want to highlight the story of Zacchaeus. I want to talk about the way that Jesus loved Zacchaeus. So, uh, so Zacchaeus, who was he? He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. And, no, uh, so Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. He was, trying to think of like the, the cultural equivalent of what Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus was like a, maybe a, a <laughs> tax collector. Uh, that's good, that's good. Zacchaeus was like a, like a drug dealer. Think of Zacchaeus like a drug dealer. Um, and he is, uh, he's up there, a Packers fan. That's, I think that's what I heard over there. <laughs> so Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is like a drug dealer. And uh, you know, he is, he is exploiting people. He's taking advantage of people. He's draining people's money from them. He's, he's doing more than he should, and he is living large off of the ways that he is exploiting people. And Jesus comes up to Zacchaeus and says, hey, Zacchaeus, I want to go to your house, and I want to go eat with you. And so Jesus goes into Zacchaeus's house. Now, everybody around was looking at this situation, and they were going, I don't know about that Jesus. What is he doing? Does he know who Zacchaeus is? Does he know what Zacchaeus has done? 
who, like, who is Zacchaeus that Jesus would go and have dinner with him? And then Zacchaeus walks out of the house and pays back to everyone from whom he had taken fourfold. And then on top of that, gives half of all of his remaining assets to the poor. Okay, so what was significant about that story? It's this, that Jesus loved Zacchaeus. And you know what? I don't know who Zacchaeus is for you, but Zacchaeus was the other in this case. I don't know who your other is, but Jesus can love that person through you, if you will let him. Would you pray with me, please? Holy Spirit, I don't know who you are laying on our hearts right now, but would you, would you show us what it means to love the other? To actually love them, to not just see them as an issue, but to see them in light of the fact that if you had not saved us, we would be in the same state as them. God, and as you enable us to see this way, would you help us to love them? To love them, to actually share the goodness of your grace with them. Lord, may, may the people in this room, the people in this church, may we be those who actually reveal your love. Lord, this world, it, it has a mold that is so unhelpful for us. It tells us the way that we should act towards the people that disagree with us, towards the people who don't do the things that we think we should do. And Lord, we cannot continue to be formed by that mold. Lord, but we need to be shaped by you. And so as we reflect on your gospel, on what it was that you actually accomplished for us, would you turn us in to the kinds of people who show love? Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you for the amazing way that you have showed love for us in Jesus. When I was a little girl, I went to a Baptist church.